the key takeaway for all the members in your organization, Lori, is that the AI Act is not regulating the AI in particular. It's regulating use cases and particular implementation of AI. You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. To help make sense of these topics, we sit down with thought leaders and we do what we do best at the Conference Board, provide trusted insights for what's ahead. I'm Lori Esposito-Murray, President of the Committee for Economic Development, the Public Policy Center of the Conference Board. In today's conversation, we're discussing Europe's AI regulatory proposals with Dominique Shelton Leipzig. Dominique is a partner at Mayor Brown for cybersecurity and data privacy. She is also a leader for global data innovation. Welcome, Dominique, and let's jump right in. June 14th was an important date on this issue. The EU passed a draft law called the AI Act, an important step in their regulatory process. Can you help us understand the major components of the AI Act? Yes. So, you know, we all saw the headlines that on June 14th, the European Parliament adopted its version of the their AI regulation for the EU. It's important to note where there are synergies. The EU has a trilogue process. So sort of like our House and Senate, they have their European Commission, European Council, and European Parliament have different versions of their EU draft EU AI Act. And they will be now in trilogue, finding synergies between the three versions and issuing a final. We're expecting that the final uh, EU Act will be adopted by the end of December. The uh, German Data Protection Authority predicted that, and that's also what we're seeing uh, with our contacts in Brussels. This will mean uh, companies will have two years to sort of, uh, for those global companies operating in Europe, they will have two years from the adoption date to actually uh, not only take care of governance, but also some very technical system level uh, accounting and documentation that so, are built as in we all know, to uh, Dominique, uh, what happens in Europe does not stay in Europe. We saw this with uh, the GDPR. And so give us uh, some understanding of the major components of the AI Act and, and what are the next steps? Yeah, so the major component, and I think the key takeaway for all the members in your uh, organization, Lori, is that the AI Act is not regulating the AI in particular. There, it's regulating use cases and particular implementation of AI. What does that mean? It is a risk ranking approach. So first and foremost, there is unacceptable uses for AI that are delineated. There are high risk uh, areas of AI that are delineated and a standard elaborated, about 22 examples of high-risk AI in the area of finance, medical, children, location, uh, remote biometrics, and real-time tracking are some of those employment uses, 
and insurance and credit are another example, but that's all laid out in the 22 high risk categories. And then there's medium and low risk that are delineated for it. The, the thing that's most important for all AI is that this, the European Parliament version, which I do think it, the uh, control over generative AI that it asserts will be in the final adopted, adopted version at the end of uh, this year. I do believe that's going to occur. So it's important for uh, all of us to recognize that the EU Act will cover all AI. That's predictive, generative, uh, logical, all of the different types of AI will be covered. And the key thing to keep in mind is what are your use cases in your company? What are you looking at? And then from there, uh, applying the appropriate controls. The other key takeaway that I want to differentiate and this does remind me very much of GDPR, but one thing that is very important for companies to realize is that the EU Act has technical components, uh, logging, mapping, documentation that must be built into the AI itself. So your technical teams uh, right now should be looking at that act and looking at ways to incorporate the technical components which will be required. So let's just step back for a minute, and why don't you share with us uh, briefly uh, so we understand the dramatic advances in terms of AI and and relate that to the European Union has been looking at AI for the past two years, and, and now it's, it's on steroids in terms of uh, how quickly it's acting uh, because of the advances in AI. So if you could just uh, encapsulate for us uh, briefly, what AI, what role AI has played and, and how it, uh, generative AI is a major leap forward. Yeah, so, you know, AI, as you mentioned, Laurie, has been around for decades, actually, in, in various versions, and we're all interacting with AI every day, if we use Google Maps, et cetera, chatbots. But what really took the world by storm was the commercialization of AI, generative AI, and the large language models and neural networks that will allow for content to be created. Now, this technology has been in place for about five years, and the Europeans have been working on draft legislation and guidance in this area for four years. I also want to point out that um, the, I was mentioning this to Peter before we got started, that the AI Act and drafts in Europe actually are synergistic with 37 other countries that are on the cusp of adopting AI legislation. So uh, that is in across six continents, including Middle East, Africa, LATAM, APAC. So I want to also bring about the synergistic way that this is being approached around the world. Um, in terms of the impact that AI will have, of course, we've seen the statistics that uh, it, generative AI could bring up to 7% uh, growth in GDP in the next three years. Uh, so the opportunities are enormous, but also the risks are uh, equally enormous. What I'm excited about and, and what didn't happen with GDPR, but I, I believe now is in place, is that everyone is engaged. Uh, regulators around the world have been meeting with research scientists. Uh, Laura, you mentioned the Digital Trust Summit. We have uh, we were there listening to uh, Professor Suresh Venkatasubaranian, who is the co-chair of uh, the White House uh, Advisory Council on Science and Technology. He has written, uh, co-authored uh, with his other co-chair, 60 pages of technical specs that they are expecting uh, government contractors in the U.S. to abide by. 
he's all and, and these technical specs are also being looked at in Europe because the European AI Act will promulgate regulations afterwards to implement some of the document documentation requirements and technical requirements that are embedded. So it's not just a governance play that we're looking at around the world. We're looking at technical uh, uh, sort of hard coding in to look at things like algorithmic discrimination, IP protections, privacy, separate and distinct from cybersecurity, and also antitrust. Uh, so those are the components and uh, the focus of these, this legislation, not just in the EU, but in 37 other countries. Yeah, and before we turn to that, and those are all, those are the main critical areas. Uh, I just want to step back and ask you, really, the big question is how to regulate AI without uh, stifling in innovation. And so do you think the EU is on the right track in terms of uh, meeting that challenge? Well, you know, uh, we heard the CEO of uh, OpenAI saying, look, this some of these uh, requirements are just not going to be potentially workable for them. And so they'll do the best they can to comply, but it may not be workable. But, you know, I think, Laurie, the, whether they're on the right track or not, I do see that there is a, a sort of a movement, sort of the way what we experienced with GDPR. And now we have 160 countries with data protection laws that very much map to GDPR. I think we are already, that train might be already out of the station in terms of being able to lobby. What businesses can do, and I think very effectively, is look at their use cases within their environments. And for particular use cases, if it turns out we will, you know, we can't uh, meet the requirements of having logging data or being able to conduct testing on, you know, in metrics on algorithmic bias in this particular vector, you have to come very specifically to be able to be effective with these legislators who've been meeting with research, you know, large language research scientists at academic institutions like uh, the professor that we, the professors we heard at Brown, um, the, and, and all, you know, Yale, Harvard, uh, Oxford, all, all around the world uh, have been taught, research scientists have been advising governments on this. So the technical standards that they are outlining have been in conjunction with technical research scientists that have been working on AI. So when uh, business approaches this regulation in order to be effective on the lobbying, I think it's going to be very important to be specific on the use cases to help direct uh, the Europeans and research scientists where they might have it wrong in particular industry sectors or particular use cases for models. So it really is looking at company by company as what they're doing as well as what's happening in the sectors. And uh, just turning back again, so China, the UK, Singapore, and, and as you've said, there are many more countries than that, but they seem to be in the lead along with the uh, EU. What's the commonality of approach? So the commonality of approach is the risk ranking um, to unacceptable, high, medium, and low. All of them talk about that. Uh, the other commonality is a focus on algorithmic discrimination or bias, basically looking at vulnerable groups and determining when there might be significant material impact on individual um, individuals that might be impacted either by the training data, the data that's used to train the model, or the output, uh, the algorithm, and the impact the algorithm might have on those vulnerable populations. So um, let's just take algorithmic discrimination, for example, in the HR or employment use case. Well, there, 
it's important for the testing. They want pre-deployment and post-deployment testing. That's another component in all of the legislation I've seen in 37 countries. They want to see for high-risk processing and high-risk uses of AI that there's been pre-deployment testing for algorithmic bias. In order to do that, taking uh, just going back to the employment use case, a company would need to get their, whoever fills out, like say in the US, the EEOC forms or what is what the HR teams are normally filling out. They will need to share those factors with the folks creating your IT, your customized uh, generative AI model for HR in your company so that those metrics for testing can be documented. Uh, also, the AI will need to embed in it logging capabilities so that it's not just uh, your team giving a report about what the how your AI was tested. What the regulators want is one step further is to be able to see the logging data itself and the documentation itself from the system. So uh, that is a component that I think was very important because it means that in just taking the HR context in, in that example, that the HR folks, the IT folks, and the governance folks are going to need to come together in terms of what data will be used to train the model. Of course, your IP and cyber folks will need to be aware of that as well. And then the testing and the output will need to be documented. So that's just one example of a use case. But you take each vertical that's happening in a company, insurance, lending, um, asset management, that's why it's so important for the CEOs and boards to uh, first get a briefing. How are we looking at AI in our company? And, uh, and to find out if any prohibited use cases are being ideated within the enterprise. There are some, uh, the other commonality is in terms of uh, unacceptable risk. Social scoring has been one that uh, in all of the jurisdictions that I've seen, there is unanimity that that is prohibited. Another prohibited uh, activity is remote biometric monitoring for law enforcement purposes. That um, basically that those are large databases where identity is sort of. Uh, we have some examples here in the U.S. of companies that have large databases of visuals that are gathered from the internet and then for identity management purposes, someone will walk by and there's sensors that can ping against that large database and identify this is probably Dominique or Lori, et cetera. So that kind of remote monitoring for law enforcement purposes as uh, being, unless there's a, it's necessary for an investigation and it's with a judicial order, that's what the European Parliament is calling for, that is prohibited is prohibited use for the high risk uses. We've talked about some of those already, but it's important to think about some of these things that they have on the high risk that are um, pretty commonplace, like employment uses, vocational uses, educational uses, uh, pretty commonplace for generative AI. And, and that's why it's so important that we align on what is expected, not just in Europe, but in these other jurisdictions as well, identifying those use cases as high risk. So. Uh, we didn't really take the U.S. and and the U.S. private sector and government sector really didn't take uh, GDPR uh, when when the EU was working on the uh, general data privacy uh, regulations. Uh, we really didn't take that very seriously and ended up behind the curve. Uh, what lessons should we learn from that? And and what should the U.S. 
both uh, first on a, a public, looking at the public sector, what should US policy leaders do? And, and then we'll turn to uh, what, what um, uh, private companies ought to do. Well, thank you for asking that, Laurie. And I'm, I'm excited about the data leadership that the US can now exert, having learned the lessons of GDPR. And I hope we did learn those lessons. Uh, we're the only country in the top 10 GDP that does not have a, a sort of federal or omnibus data protection law. That's put us behind the eight ball uh, in terms of data transfers in Europe, jeopardizing about 7.1 trillion in commerce. And we're still working through those uh, the issues now. Uh, now that so much is being reimagined with AI, I think we have a wonderful opportunity to not only uh, catch up to what was missed during GDPR, but also step forward in a leadership role as we uh, iterate into the future, because the technology, just as it was with the tech companies in uh, Silicon Valley, the technology is really coming out of the US and it makes sense that we should be leaders in terms of its governance and uh, the legal frameworks around trusted AI. The commonality also I wanna say in all of the laws I've seen is that there is a concept called trusted AI legal framework. That is what everyone is talking about in Middle East, Africa, EU, all of the draft legislation. And the uh, United States needs that as well. It's very important. I was inspired to be at the first Senate Judiciary hearing on May 16th and be in the room. And of course, I saw you after that at the NASDAQ uh, briefing. But I was excited to hear legislators on both sides of the aisle talking about the need for leadership uh, you know, everybody from uh, Senator uh, Hawley to uh, Senator Klobuchar, Senator Booker to uh, Senator Blackburn, all of them uh, expressing the importance of United States leadership here. This is going to be the standard that is going to basically be effectuated around the world. And I think what happened with GDPR, we thought, oh, this is something just happening in Europe and we're not really focusing on this um, for our companies until much later. Uh, we don't want to do that this time. I think it's very important for companies now to basically uh, future-proof their AI systems and the investments that they're making by getting aligned right now with the specifics of the laws that we know about. And uh, the AI Act in Europe is not fuzzy. It's very clear where there's alignment in all three uh, versions. So we know pretty clearly what the swim lanes are going to be and what will be expected. And that will uh, set a standard. I think they're gonna move quicker than the US, but I do think the US will be uh, stepping forward in a leadership role. I'm excited about that. We, we just held, CED just held its trustee policy summit on June 14th. And the message was exactly the same, Dominique, on, on bipartisanship. Uh, the members of Congress, Senate and the House that we heard from we're all talking about this as, as a bipartisan effort. And, and I think that is so critical, as you were saying, because it really, that is what helps uh, us succeed in terms of finding that balance between um, uh, mitigating risk and making sure that we're not crippling innovation. Uh, so, but I do, as, a, as I know we're coming to our close here, I do wanna ask you because you have some very uh, insightful um, suggestions in terms of the role that boards should play in, within the company. And you've, you've delineated some of the things that the company leadership and should be doing, but what, what's the balls, the boards have a very important role here and, and uh, help us understand how they should be looking at this. Yeah. So uh, 
boards are critical in this discussion and can help uh, management and the CEO align with and, and stay with strategy in terms of the growth and the opportunity for the AI investment. So um, AI governance teams are happening everywhere and in multiple companies, and the board can draw 30,000 feet ahead to pose the question, hey, this is wonderful. Let us have a briefing on the use cases. This is so exciting. Are we aligned? Is anything happening in the company that is uh, going to be considered high risk or perhaps prohibited? Let's talk about whether we want to go in that direction. I think the board should also be posing questions about where are we with the technology and are we building in accordance with what we are will be best practices um, and standards that are outlined in this uh, and future proofing our AI in the standards that are in this uh, regulation that's forthcoming. And really asking the uh, companies to engage in with organizations such as yours, Lori, if there are specific use cases that need to be bubbled up to regulators that they might have overlooked that make certain of the requirements not workable for your particular um, industry or company. It's a time to not shy away as boards from the responsibility of oversight and to really help guide the enterprise in the leadership of their data. Because again, uh, what we wanna move towards, and I think what we learned with GDPR is not a whack-a-mole um, and sort of lurching to each law and in panic that we're not ready. Rather, uh, taking the steps because we have the opportunity to become data leaders, taking a step to future-proof ahead of time and align with the forthcoming uh, legislation that we're on the cusp of adopting around the world. Uh, this is easily done. It's, I think, many of the requirements are not tough. You just need to know about them and then build them in. And it's really more of a re-up and helping the company think about, I think, from a board perspective, how to reallocate existing resources. It's not really more resources that are necessary. It's a reallocation and a shifting to ensure that the AI governance programs that are being uh, imagined and uh, developed within the enterprise are actually in sync with the legal standards that will be uh, imposed. Because it's not really the legal that is so important. It's the business advantage that is in, um, that is imperative. So those companies, for example, back in GDPR, who were able to embrace privacy are just on the cusp of, you know, reaching 3.0 trillion market cap. I think uh, Apple and a few others have embraced those uh, ideas are um, doing great. But if we don't get ahead of these things, uh, companies can become headlines really easily. Uh, goodwill jeopardize and trust, of course, Lori, as we've talked about so much, um, uh, at risk. No need to tether to the laws at, and wait for them to actually be enacted. We know what the terms are. It's wonderful now to step forward as a data leader and, and really soar with our data. Dominique, thank you so much for joining us. This is uh, an excellent discussion at a very critical time uh, as uh, the whole world is looking at how to deal with, uh, looking for insights on how to deal with these rapid technological technological changes and really appreciate uh, what you're bringing to this conversation. I, I do want to say to uh, our uh, uh, listeners uh, to this podcast that the conference board is bringing all of its resources and expertise 
uh, that you can find in the AI hub uh, if you go to tcb.org. And uh, all the best of what we're doing is being placed in that hub, including this podcast. You'll be able to find that there. And also uh, an invitation to our, our TCB members that we are co-sponsoring with Dominique, Mayor Brown, and Bank of America, the first uh, annual Digital Trust Summit at Brown University in March of 2024, which you'll be receiving an invitation to. So, Dominique, thank you for joining us today. I look forward to continuing to work with you throughout this year and, and of course, our, our uh, summit in March. Thank you so much, Lori. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.